Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 30 of Death Space Filling the Void. I'm recording this on Sunday, the 23rd, watching a little NFL football. Football, I don't know why I said it with a... <laughs> like that. It's definitely been an indoor weekend. We had, we had an ice storm here in Charleston, which a lot of the businesses were closed. It's just hilarious coming from the north. I mean, it is a safety precaution, but it's a little bit of ice. You know, if we just drive a little safer, we'll be okay. But yeah, great, great excuse to kind of just hang around the house and watch movies and the NFL playoffs. All that except our poor Ollie. Ollie's our puppy. Went to the vet yesterday. I was there for like four or five hours. He's got to go back again tomorrow. They they don't know what's what's going on with him. But he's he's not eating and he, something's bugging him. Probably something in his stomach. And so a bunch of tests done and and we'll see. We'll see what happens, but it's heartbreaking to watch your little puppy not feeling well. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully the vet's able to figure it out tomorrow and we can get this little man back to feeling like himself. Well, I've got another great interview lined up. I spoke with Brett Ween, who I know from the New York City improv community. He's so funny. He's so good. Brett, unfortunately, lost his mother to suicide and he's now the Director of Writing and Entertainment Outreach at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And he, talk, he talks about all that, which is extremely brave. It, it, it must be so hard to, to talk about, but it, it all comes from a, a sense of trying to help others, which is incredible. Before we get started, I just wanted to offer a quick content warning. Today's episode does deal with the topic of suicide, and even though there's nothing graphic or anything like that if you happen to be feeling vulnerable at at the moment or if the topic might be a little too much for you right now please trust your gut and maybe listen to it at another time give yourself some space i i also want to mention that if you or someone you know is struggling right now you can reach out to the national suicide prevention lifeline or the crisis text line which are both free and available 24 7 there's absolutely zero shame in reaching out for help when you need it. It's a strong, responsible thing to do. I'll put all the links to these resources in the episode's description so you have it at your fingertips. Please, please, please be careful and please, please, please take care of yourself. All right, let's make our way over to the interview with Brett Ween. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Joining me now on the podcast is Brett Ween from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Brett, thank you so much for, for coming on. It is my pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, uh, we, you know, right before recording, I, I was saying Brett had shared his specific title. And then I was like, oh, man, I, I just get so panicky at the, the start of these for some reason. Uh, but what is your title? My oh, you're putting it back on me so I can yes. mess it up myself. <laughs> it's well, uh, my current title, and, and here's me trying it up myself because it's a mouthful, is the senior manager of writing and entertainment outreach. And what that means is I had started at AFSP about not quite seven years ago. And I started, I used to work in book publishing and I, I began as the senior communications writer working in our national headquarters. We have local chapters in every state. And what my job does is I work on virtually any piece of writing that you can imagine, whether it's web copy or education programs or working on national campaigns, things like that. It, it could be the, the Peoria chapter. We don't have a Peoria chapter, but like the Peoria chapter just found out they got free radio space. Do we have 30, 60, 90 second promos for this specific education? No, we don't. Okay, well, they need it in the next day or the next three hours or whatever. <laughs> um, so like writing and editing all kinds of different things. The reason my title changed is, and I'm mythologizing a little bit, but basically a few years ago, I walked into my boss's office one day and I predicted that more and more TV and movies are going to come to us proactively if their stories involve suicide or mental health because they wanna get it right. And, and in some cases, they're probably scared of getting it wrong because of the backlash. We cut to today and a large part of my job has become working with, with TV and films, giving them feedback, looking at scripts, 
you know, working with their writers' rooms, looking at footage and telling them what we know from the suicide prevention research as a field. There are things we know in terms of storytelling, kind of in the same way we know a lot of things about safe reporting and journalism when it comes to suicide. And that is basically that nothing you put on screen is going to make the average person suddenly want to kill themselves. But for people who are already in a vulnerable state who, who may really not be doing well, there are certain things about the way you either report in the news about suicides or the way you you tell stories about it on TV or in movies that can be dangerous for people who are already not doing well. And so that's, so I've sort of created that, that role around myself, which is, and we can talk about how, how just working at AFSP in general is really personal for me, but to get to, to involve my sort of storytelling and entertainment background is really kind of amazing. Yeah. And we know each other a little bit through the New York City improv and, and comedy scene. So for people that don't know Brett at all, like this, that's such a fun and, and important role that you've created for yourself. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot of hard work, but I love getting to be this guy who's sort of quietly behind the scenes having an impact. I mean, I remember just sometimes for people who have impact, been impacted by that, sometimes it's liter- literally just a line of dialogue or something or the way characters respond to that sort of thing in a story can have a big impact on how you feel or how, how someone might think about it in their own lives. So I love yeah. being like the silent puppet master. <laughs> or it, sometimes <laughs> it's just a matter of making it safer mm. than it would otherwise have been. It's not always about like, oh my God, thanks to my feedback, this is a wonderful expression of mental health. It, it's mm-hmm. sometimes about, oh my God, this movie that's dropping, it's going to be really dangerous, but here I've, I've gotten them to, to edit it slightly so that it's not anywhere near as dangerous. Got it. Well, I'm curious, like when, when you're talking about, you're trying to make these shows and movies less dangerous how so? What are, you, what are you looking for? What are you trying to, how are you trying to shape them? So some of the things that we know from research that can be dangerous for people are if you show graphically a suicide or a suicide attempt on screen, we know that that can be really dangerous mm. for people. And that's kind of the big, the really big thing. And that goes also with, with dialogue in terms of talking in great detail about a method that someone might use that can be like pretty triggering these things go back to there's a thing called the Werther effect and and uh, the Papageno effect from from Mozart and different storylines from as far back then that sometimes depending on how they're handled in in a work of popular entertainment and so and then it really just comes down to it's not a simple kind of set of specific that's sort of the big thing but it gets into real subtlety in terms of does it does the story involve a universe that seems totally hopeless or is it is it one where help is available whether the character realizes it himself or not it's not a situation where i ever want to be like a network censor or something it's about really exploring what that particular what the voice of that show or movie is I don't want people to feel constrained. We want people to feel encouraged about exploring this stuff and just finding creative ways to to just avoid those little landmines that might be dangerous. It really depends on the specific show and what their voice is. Yeah, it's got to be extremely subjective, exactly what you're describing when when it comes to tone or the circumstances of it. But nonetheless, it's good to have someone such as yourself taking a look at it because... People who are just writing shows really may not have any idea what they're doing when it comes to talking about suicide. Yeah. In my experience doing it, most of the time it's 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 not that they want to do anything dangerous or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. My my favorite moments are, and this is this is how it generally goes, is that sometimes just in talking to me and finding more out about what the field of suicide prevention knows about it in a in a scientific way and and what leads someone to, to possibly tempt or take their own life. Often I will leave meetings with writers getting like really excited with new possibilities 
Um, oh, so it's, it's very, yeah, it's very rarely a situation of feeling pushback. They want to get it right. And it's, it's generally not a matter of me saying, no, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. It might just be little things. Maybe it's a wide shot. Maybe this is over audio. It's, it's usually not about showing that specific moment mm-hmm. of pain. It's if you really want to get into that story, it's, it's probably about what preceded it and what comes mm-hmm. afterwards. And if you do want to show that moment, there, there are ways of doing it that are, that are safer. Got it. Is there a movie or a show that you've seen somewhat recently that you think has done a good job at, at talking about suicide? My favorite one, and it's one that I like to, to reference because a lot of people don't know about it, but it's not from too long ago. There was an Australian... I don't know whether to describe it as a sitcom or not. It was it was a half hour show called Please Like Me, which is more recently on Hulu. And it's genuinely really, really funny. I can list so many things I love about that show, which are that it starts out, the first episode is the character, it's a young guy and his mom has just attempted suicide and she goes to live with him so he can sort of help her out. So of course, on a personal level, and and maybe we'll talk about this, mm-hmm. that speaks to me in my own experience, having a mom who struggled. The way the show sort of follows that whole storyline is really, it's it feels very authentic and real, but it's also genuinely funny and it's sensitive and you get a feeling over the course of the series that mental health isn't something that is just something some people, some like weird people experience. It's we all have mental mm-hmm. health. You know, I think the thing with comedy in terms of this particular thing is you never want to punch down. It's not like making fun of someone's pain, but I mean, I'll, I guess we're jumping in here, like right in the middle in a nonlinear way. But I remember a moment growing up where my mom, who had a lot of mental health challenges and was often suicidal, um, and who also, by the way, was very funny. Um, but I remember one, one moment when I was a little kid of her just like freaking out. And my grandparents were over and she grabbed a lamp and she threw it out the window. And we were all in her, her bedroom. And we watched through the window as though time had stopped mm-hmm. as the lamp kind of sailed, sailed out over the front lawn, looking as though it was heading toward the, the kind of brick path going up toward the house. Mm-hmm. And it didn't quite make it like all our, we were holding our breath watching it and it didn't quite make it. And it ended up landing on the grass mm-hmm. in this sort of dull thump. It was very anticlimactic. <laughs> you didn't get and that everyone, break. And so it didn't break. It just landed on the grass. And we all just sort of stood there for a minute in the middle of this high drama. And my she sort of took a second and looked at it and looked at us. And the dog looked up at us and looked back at her. And and she, like, after a moment, she walked past us. And she we watched her walk down the steps. And she walked out onto the front lawn. And she took the lamp. And she took it back into the house and walked up. <laughs> the steps again passed us into her bedroom and she threw it out the window again and no oh my gosh and this time it made it and that's i'm great. that's a very dramatic and in some ways very sad she was in a lot of pain obviously but you can't tell me that there isn't some comedy in that yeah yeah that is very funny right comedy is like the setup and then the denial of uh, or or fulfillment of an expected outcome, right? To to really make it into a math equation that that certainly fits that uh, description. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is is and we've started on the conversation. We got a little into your current role, but unfortunately, you lost your mother to suicide. So tell me a little bit about your mom. What was it like growing up with her? I'd love to find out who she was. It's one of those things where when I when I tell people sort of the big headline, which is that I lost my mom to suicide, and now I work at the country's largest suicide prevention organization, and, and that feels really personal to me, and, and it's become a great thing. It's really, though, the story of, of what happened with my mom, it wasn't really all about that moment of losing her, which was just... 10 or 11 years ago. Basically, I grew up with the funniest, nicest, best mom you can possibly imagine. And the only problem, I'm making this sound like a movie tagline, but the only problem was she kept trying to kill herself. More she than one occasion. Really, I genuinely can't tell you how many, because how do you, 
how do you quantify it exactly? Was it every time she ended up in the hospital? Oh what my goodness. Time she took a lot of pills. Chances were she she knew that she she would be okay, but it was she sort of knocked herself out for a day or two. People talk about it being, oh, it's just a cry for help, but it's a if you're on the beach and someone is in the water and they're crying for help. That's something you always need to take seriously. So yeah, most of the time she was this very fun-loving, spirited person. She had a lot of friends. She was very well loved, very lovable. But then on some days she had a problem with depression and Ultimately, I didn't know this as a kid, but after I, as an adult, when I moved to New York and I started seeing a psychologist myself, mainly just to, to know what to do to help her. Am I doing everything I can? And of course that ended up being support for myself too. He ended up, my guy ended up being able to talk to her occasional. She had a psychiatrist who, she wasn't really in serious therapy. She wasn't really engaging in go to him when she, you know, every once in a while when she wanted like a pat on the head or get a refill on her, either sleeping pills or he, he would try her on different medications. And so all things being relative, I'm lucky in the sense that a lot of people who've lost someone to suicide, sometimes it happens out of nowhere. There are warning signs we know to look out for, but you know, not everyone knows to look for them or spots them. And I was luck, relatively lucky in the sense that I knew her diagnosis very well. I knew that she, she had borderline personality disorder, which is really, really complicated and difficult to treat. I, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I, I don't quite know what borderline personality means. And I, obviously there's probably a spectrum, but I'd love to know a little bit, just a little bit about what so I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not a mental health professional mm-hmm. myself. I just, I work alongside the country's the leading suicide prevention mm-hmm. experts. So I want to be careful about my trying to find borderline personality disorder because it's such a complex thing. I can tell you from my own personal experience with my mom, her mood would change. And this is also, she, she probably had bipolar disorder too. And so what I experienced with her was, you know, someday great and fine but she would get so sort of paralyzed in her thinking and trying to problem solve for herself that that would get frozen and so she would catastrophize a lot and sometimes be histrionic to the point of being irrational mm. so that was sort of my own I think it depends on the person to some extent. I would really recommend for anyone who's seriously interested in that. There's a book by Dr. Marsha Linehan. This is someone who who created dialectical behavior therapy. And that and cognitive behavioral therapy are two therapies that have been proven to to be helpful with people who are suicidal. Okay. And so Marsha Linehan's book is about how it's partly a personal story and partly about how she created um, DBT. And it, it talks about how she was hospitalized herself when she was really young. And the way she puts it was that she wanted to come up with a way, she wanted to show other people a way out of hell. And she created this cool therapy that I think is a combination of, it's sort of like, like cognitive behavioral therapy is, um, it gives you a lot of tools that you kind of learn how to use in during moments where you're not struggling and in pain that severely. And so, you know, when you are, you can do certain things. And if I could go back every once in a while, I'll feel guilt. I mean, I was trying so hard to help my mom over the years that for the most part, I can assuage any momentary feelings of guilt, knowing like that I, I did all I could. And that was Mm -hmm. the therapy for me was worth the price of admission just for that. I would have like, I had a momentary thought of should have pushed my mom more with that. And then I realized, wait, my doctor actually did recommend that. And I did try and get my mom to look into that. Mm. You, you said that you, you recognized like the floor would drop out for your mom where she'd be really happy and okay. And then have really low, low days throughout your whole childhood. This was something that she always lived with. Pretty much. I mean, I think it started a little bit before I was born too. And my parents divorced. They separated when I was in first grade. Okay. So it was me and her. We were close with my grandparents who didn't live far away. And my dad was around, but he wasn't right there. But yeah, I remember when I was very little. Sorry for the sirens, by the way. As though as though to prove that I live in New York City. Yes. <laughs> for the most part, she was like the best mom in the world. But 
there were, yeah, there were days where it was her, her situation was more complicated than just depression. I think mm-hmm. I found out that she'd get very depressed or she, she would just be lying in, in, in her dark room. And, and the other thing that feels weird to say that it's interesting because I lived through it and she lived through it. But I think one of the other interesting things about her story is that, you know, we had plenty of money. We lived in a very wealthy area. She had a hard time figuring out holding down a job, even though she was very, very smart and could have been really successful. She had a hard time with that. And by the end, and she just had less and less money. So often money would be a thing she was stressed out about. And even though she could problem solve brilliantly for her friends and for other people, she would just get paralyzed in in kind of fear and not be able to to handle it. And so like by the end of her life, she wasn't out on the street, but she was homeless. She was the last year of her life. She was couch surfing and would sort of lash out at me by not telling me where she was. Oh my gosh. Um, So it was really nightmarish. And even growing, it got more and more dire later on. But, you know, I went to this, my my school, it was really important to me that I preppy private in my little penny lovers, but there were, there were some times where it was like a little touch and go, whether we would have food, it went back and forth wildly. So it was, it was very much part of my experience was that made it difficult was I was the child, she was the adult, but I couldn't, like, I wasn't able to sort of put my hand on the wheel because there was no reason we should have had to go through that. And yet her illness kind of made it really, really difficult. Yeah, my gosh, that sounds so hard. I mean, I'm also not a medical anything, but having mental health issues and then money problems on top can only exacerbate the problems. I mean, it, it helps things unravel. I mean, I, I definitely have anxiety, but people obviously have more uh, pressing issues. And I know from for me, like when times I've had money issues, like anxiety is just, it, it fills the void where calm thinking could could also be you know it it just makes things so much worse so i'm sorry that you guys went through that well thank you well did she ever talk about her mental uh well-being throughout her life to you and did that ever was she trying things or was she say that she couldn't handle them or i'm curious how how she spoke about it and how that may have changed throughout her life yeah that's a good question yeah i think she was aware that she had mental health issues. Yeah, it was tough because the way I would put it is like, if your leg is bothering you, it's your brain's job to tell you, oh, it's time to go see a doctor. Mm -hmm. But if there's something going on in your brain, your leg doesn't, (laughs) doesn't fill in and, Mm -hmm. and tell you. So I think it gets in the way, but yeah, like she, she knew there was one moment, I forget what was going on at that particular time, but I remember her on the phone with me and I partly like to tell this story in general because both for people who are struggling themselves and also for people who are worried about them or or have someone in their family or a friend who they, you know, has some sort of mental health situation going on. We don't talk about it as readily as we do physical health. And so there's very much a feeling of being alone and not being able to talk about it. So I'm I'm happy to 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 share and I think it makes a difference. I think it would have made a difference. I think how the culture is encouraging people to get help and making it not seem scary and making it as getting to a point where we think of mental health as in as matter of fact a way as we do physical health, recognizing that we understand suicide in, in the same kind of way we look at physical, you know, other leading causes of death. We know things about suicide scientifically and what's going on in someone's brain. When they reach that point, we can encourage people to both get help and know how to connect others to help and not feel as though there's such a a stigma with it. I think young people have less and less so of that, but it would have helped with my mom. And I think that got in the way of her really genuinely engaging in therapy. But I remember along the way in later years, it had really become a situation where I had, it was very hard for me and it took a long time to figure out how, but I needed to create some sort of healthy boundaries because she would call me constantly, whether I was at work or at home. Um, There were times she would call my bosses. She would find out my boss's numbers and and leave hysterical messages or or my girlfriends occasionally and and things like that. So I, I did have to figure out how to create boundaries. And it ended up being a matter of, it was a very subtle kind of thing and still 
being very supportive of her and talking to her often two or three times a week even. But I'd be so hard her. to strike that balance. It was so hard. And if anyone, if anyone's listening who has at all anything like a similar experience, I'm I'm so sorry for them and, and for the person mm-hmm. they're cared they care about. But what worked for me was it wasn't a matter of tough love and and saying, hey, you can't call me this many times or after midnight or whatever it was. And it was it was hard because we she she and I were really really close, mm-hmm. and I loved that, and I didn't want to change that. I didn't change it, but it became a thing of like, she doesn't need to know where I am every single day or night. I yeah. don't need to report. I don't need to tell her every single per, new person that I meet, <laughs> um, and their you know. And it I mean it was a little bit painful but it wasn't it was a very gradual subtle thing of the other thing that worked is often if she left me one of her quote unquote bad messages on my answering machine or voicemail I would often really want to put out the fire quickly so I could get on with things and not be worried about it but I I figured out maybe if she leaves me a message that is lashing out at me maybe I don't need to call her back that that night Mm. or maybe I maybe I wait a few hours or maybe I call her back the next day and I think those boundaries actually helped her but I remember one time where she was kind of feeling that a little bit and angry about it and uh, in pain on the phone and and she said you know I need you you're you're I need to know you're there when I call you and I remember she said you know I'm not right Mm. meaning you know there's something wrong with me and what was and that just like my heart so much and 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 it still hurts thinking about and it was frustrating though at the time because it's like yes and there's no shame even as a little kid I knew something wasn't right and that it wasn't her fault and it felt weird because with a physical illness you'd be able to tell other people and get support for that and I remember the frustration though which was also fair was like yes you we both know (laughs) we both know something's going on and all i'm asking is for you to show up at your shrink's office every week or two and and just all i can ask is that you show up but you're not doing that why do you think she didn't want to do that i think it was terrifying for her Mm. to you know a lot of i mentioned her money stuff she put so much stock into defining herself as someone who was from a certain strata of society. It occurs to me that the one big thing I haven't mentioned as part of her story is that she was born with, she literally had a hole in her, her heart. And so that sounds like a terrible metaphor, like my mom had a hole in her heart, but, yeah. <laughs> but she, I mean it literally. And so her childhood early on was like a lot of very experimental at the time surgeries. And uh, by the time she was a teenager, she was okay. But I think that affected her a lot. I think it, it it was hard for my grandparents because they had already lost a kid and they weren't the kind of people who would spoil their children. Mm-hmm. But I think in my mom's case, they'd lost, they'd lost her sister and my mom was really sick as a kid. And so they kind of, I still wouldn't describe it as spoiling her, but, but they erred on the side of she got first row tickets to see the Beatles and the Stones when they were first in town. And cool. she had a cool sports car. And, and uh, it was hard for them to, not just because of that, but because of her illness and the way it presented itself. It was hard for them over the years to put their foot down mm. and say, no, you need to go and deal with your stuff now. And, and you know, slowly the money was kind of running out over the years. Got it. It um, makes so much so, sense to it, it, like why you wouldn't feel like you had to show up places if, if I guess you never had to in certain certain circumstances and things kind of work out. I, I can see that. So I, th- I think to, for her to really engage in therapy, she would have, it was really scary for her and she would have had to really painfully take a look at herself and in ways that sort of more matter-of-factly were like, okay, you have this much in the bank right now. It's time for you to get a job. It doesn't mean that you're going to be, you know, you can't automatically be president of her. And it was, it was tougher as the years went on and on and on. She ended up finding something that she really enjoyed doing, which was, which I think was like her dream job, which was part of what was frustrating was that when I was in my twenties, she realized that she would make a good real estate agent. And in fact, she really did, but she was, cause she was very smart. Something that I think speaks to her thought process is that 
She was working for a law firm in Philadelphia when I was a little kid as a paralegal, and they were so impressed by her, and I think, frankly, charmed by her, that I remember the, the head of the firm offered to send her to law school for her and for her to continue working for them, which speaks to what she was like. That doesn't happen. <laughs> like, I'm sure, yeah, it doesn't really happen yeah. anymore. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And she soon after that thought of a reason to quit her job. But with real estate, she was able to use that sort of legal acumen in terms of looking at contracts. And she was very, again, she was a really funny, charming person, actually, when she wasn't crying in her room. Mm -hmm. And so she, you know, real estate, especially if you lived in, we lived on the main side of Philadelphia. And so it's a wealthy area for most people looking for a new house was like, I'm sure there were stresses involved, but it was often a happy thing. Mm -hmm. And my mom was a good salesperson and was good at she enjoyed taking people out and looking at houses and negotiating and it just checked all the the boxes for her but she was also pretty unreasonable in certain ways when she was getting started she only wanted to handle the really big houses and when you're starting out like the head of the the real estate company was like let me give you some houses to handle and that are smaller scale and my mom didn't want to do that. So mm. that was her illness to really engage in therapy would have been to have having to demolish some of the structure, the foundational structures kind of of her psyche about her place in the world yeah. and being more realistic about it. For you and your grandparents, I mean, what's this like as you're watching someone you love fail to, to get the help they need and, and not maybe put up these structures that you're describing to prevent her herself from being able to make changes and feel better about herself. What, yeah. What is that like? I think I used the word frustrated. I remember when she ultimately did die by suicide, people who have that loss experience, and I realize this now even more because of what I do and where I work, it's such a complex combination of emotions any emotions they experience are, are totally okay and normal but i think often people feel anger i didn't mostly feel anger i felt just frustrated mm. um, because she was a very competent person mm -hmm. and very charming she could have charmed her way to the top of anything but when i think of something like cognitive behavioral therapy or diagnostical diagnostical diagnostic <laughs> behavioral therapy like those practical strategies a hundred years from now, we will probably understand even better mm -hmm. really specific things. And we have learned a lot from science about suicide now, but there are things that could have helped her. And so my feeling was mostly, I felt anger at different times. It was never wanting her not to be around, but it was, you know, it was a lot at times to, she was never a burden, but it was, it was a lot to, to deal with. And so whatever we can do culturally to incur to to make people realize that they they don't need to take it on alone whether they're the person themselves or the the person supporting them can help because there are things we know work like um, what i'm, I'm curious uh, to hear well so those therapies work i think just i honestly just feel like culturally if we can make it a thing where even people just taking mental health days mm. at work and realizing that it's our mental health really is a real thing. We've proven through research that for most people, either therapy or medication are helpful. And yet people still, there's kind of a stigma with it. You don't go to see your psychologist in the same way you would just automatically go see someone for a physical illness. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I interviewed someone from the centers of, of anxiety and depression for a different podcast. And he made the point that you go to the dentist two times a year. Why isn't it considered normal healthcare to see a psychologist routinely, like even once every six months and, and you could do more, but like that gets you in the door that gets you started. A simple change like that, I think would go such a long way. And it would, if it was required, it would be, the stigma would be removed because everybody was going right. Uh, that that's a big thing and that people don't want to be seen as I'm doing air quotes crazy because they're going to see a therapist that's that's such an outdated view of of therapy yeah I mean the other thing I want to say is that not to look at this all with rose-colored glasses but the fact of the matter is it's not that it's not always easy to in in our country to to find help at the end of the day 
help is always available. There's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. There is the Crisis Text Line. There are specific, there's always something and those are free and 24 seven. And there, there are, if you go looking for it, there are resources like that where, where help is always available, but it shouldn't be so hard with all the insurance stuff. And mm-hmm. one of the other things that AFSP does is we have a, a public policy office in DC and we have all these volunteer what they call volunteer field advocates for volunteers who want to get involved in sort of political advocacy. They give you templates for emails and you can just press a button and lets you know what, what things are going on. It might be something involving mental health parity, which is like the insurance is supposed to cover mental health in the same way it does physical health and it doesn't always. So that's one of those things that we have to fight for. And so they make it easy to, to be as involved as you want to be, whether it's just sending an email or if you get really involved in that aspect of it. I was able to go to, to the House and the Senate and they set up meetings for our volunteers to share pieces of legislation that are going on at that moment and to share their personal stories in a short way to, to clarify why it's important. So yeah, you asked what can be done about, I think there's a lot that can be done. There are a lot of things we know from the research about, you can't look at a, like a specific person and say, you know, I'm going to stop Brett's mom from killing herself, mm-hmm. but there are tons of things we know statistically work to lower suicide rates in communities. The more I learn about it, it's a lot of the stuff is sort of deceptively simple mm-hmm. in a way. And so like there have been studies that putting simple suicide prevention education in communities, the rates Mm. go down. Sometimes it involves temporarily reducing access to means of someone killing themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we know that putting boundaries up on bridges lower the rates in, in those communities. And the very reasonable misconception people have is that, you know, someone might say, well, if someone if someone wants to kill themselves and they can't get up on the bridge or they don't have access to whatever their means, their preferred means are, they're just going to find another way. But all the research, all, all the gazillion studies have shown that, in fact, if they don't have access to their preferred means, in most cases, they don't go on to die by suicide. And the reason for that is that the specific cognitive state where someone is about to take action and and try and take their life, as opposed to just thinking about suicide or even planning, which are different mental states, that specific acute state only typically lasts for a certain number of minutes. Oh, wow. So it's like if the moment passes, if they're not able to get on that bridge or this way or that way without going into too many different ways of of committing suicide, it it passes that quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to the, like I think people are sort of geared innately, the the human animal is geared to survive. Just instinctively, if there's a bear running towards us, we we run into the cave or whatever it is we need to do. And and so I think when, when someone, even someone in a really like, painful suicidal state is really struggling part of them subconsciously I, I think is is often looking for a way out of the state mm-hmm. to get help and so it really you know just having people feeling comfortable enough and knowing how to talk about suicide when it comes up mm-hmm. and knowing how to have those conversations rather than fearing that they're going to get it wrong and not having it sometimes it really is as simple as someone saying like you don't seem like yourself and trusting their gut. That is often the release valve that the person needs to, Mm -hmm. to finally say like, you know what, I'm not doing well. And that leads to them getting help. And they're in a way, part of their brain, I think is looking for those Mm -hmm. moments. I mean, even just like training frontline workers, like in ERs to ask about that kind of thing as a matter of course, that's often all the person needs to, to say like, yeah, you're the first person who's asked me. Yeah, I actually have been thinking about it. Yeah, I, I've, I've gone to a bunch of doctors recently and they've all asked questions like that. And it's like, it's been eye-opening because I've never had asked that before, but that makes perfect sense that you're here. Maybe this is the, the time that you feel comfortable opening up and, and, and opening the door to getting that care. So that sounds like a great idea, yeah. Other things like what we call postvention, and what I mean by that is, as opposed to prevention, is like, God forbid, someone, one of your employees or one of your students takes their life. How do you handle that? There are guides that are available with how to respond to that in a safe 
And, and that's one of those moments where someone taking their life in your community, if it's handled badly, it could, it could lead to other people taking their lives, or it could lead to a, a lot of people actually accessing help and learning more about mental health. For instance, when a, when a celebrity dies by suicide, if the journalism and the reporting on it is really sort of gra- unnecessarily graphic or glamorizes it in some way, that can lead to what they call suicide contagion, where the rates go up. But also, surprisingly, I forget if this was across the board or just in certain areas where the reporting was was handled really well. But with Kurt Cobain, when the reporting was done well on it, it actually led to more people asking for help. And oh, I think wow. it may have even lowered the rates. Yeah. And that's all about, you know, similar to the storytelling stuff, not focusing on the method and using it as an opportunity to share resources. Mm-hmm. You know, so they would say, if you're struggling, there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Crisis Text Line, things like that. So it's, I mean, it's, it's really simple stuff, but those are the things we know statistically lower the rates. That's so uplifting. I mean, it really, it, not to belittle it, but it all just seems like very simple and easy steps that we can, it's not something yes. daunting that we need. It's not like we're curing cancer. It's just more seemingly like we talk about it. It's literally just like more people learning what the warning signs are. We have these things that I helped create called the real, we had a campaign called Real Convo. Okay. And we created these guides that are the Real Convo guides. And it gives you like really specific guidance. One of them is like, if you're worried about someone, how do you, how do you ask them if you, you know, you trust your gut. If you think they're thinking about suicide, how do you have that conversation? How do you have that conversation? You ask them the one thing we know from research, if people take one thing away from this, it's you trust your gut. It's basically if the person doesn't seem like themselves and you ask them directly. I think it's really reasonable that a lot of people worry that asking them will put the idea in their head or it'll push them into action. And the research all shows that that's absolutely not true. Oh, that's Um, great. Yeah. And so, yeah, the thing to the one thing I would say, and I can give you the links for the guides if mm-hmm. you want, it's afsp.org slash real convo. Just ask them in a matter of fact, non-judgmental way. You don't need to try and problem solve. You just sort of be there with them and, and kind of along the lines of being a good improviser. It's active listening mm-hmm. and just being present and being like, I'm sorry, you're going through that. And I'm here with you. We're going to get you through this. I'm on your um, side, holding space. Exactly. All that stuff. And realizing that you're not a mental health professional, probably, mm-hmm. and that it's about encouraging them to, to reach out for help. And that might mean, you know, it depends on what you're, you feel able to do and what they need. But aside from just saying you should get help, maybe it's about, I will, I will help look stuff up for you and figure it out with your insurance, or I'll get on the phone with you, or I'll sit with you while you do it. Are you going, you have your appointment this week. Are you going, do you want me to pick you up? That's great. Yeah. How about if I pick you up afterwards and we go for coffee? Yeah, that's great, man. That's so encouraging that these are, that that it's out there and, and it's things that we can all, we can accomplish this, right? We can, we can, we can do that as, yeah. as friends and, and people. So that's great. Since I imagine a bunch of improvisers will be listening to this <laughs> since you're such a great improviser Thank you. and people might know you from that world, make it a twofer and be like, Hey, my, sh- your appointments on Thursday, my show is on Thursday. <laughs> I'll, I'll pick you up and we'll, you can come see my show. Yeah, there you go. If you're listening to this podcast, one of the reasons may be because you're interested in having your death or a loved one's death be celebrated in, in a different way, to, to think outside the box a little bit. I, I personally really like the idea of that. And that's why I'm partnering with a company called Spirit Vessel, who creates these guided personalized ceremonies for yourself or, or a loved one. Well, just to give you a little bit of background, Spirit Vessel is a sister-owned company that is bringing sacred ceremonies around death back into the home in a beautiful and meaningful way. I love it. I love the idea of of making it more personal. And I've experienced wakes and funerals that it felt so cold and, and wish that I could inject a little bit more personality and, and more storytelling to help the grieving process. Spirit Vessel has these handcrafted ceramic urns and personalized celebration of life 
ceremony packages that can be done in the comfort of your home or through webcasting services. Whether you're grieving the loss of a loved one, preparing for an imminent death, or taking steps to plan for your own death, Spirit Vessel provides resources to help you respond from your heart with creativity and courage. So basically you can design your own creative and and personalized intimate ceremony that represents the person who you're celebrating. And there's also tips to help people who are grieving going forward. So whether you're interested in the celebration of life ceremony packages, or you'd like to check out or order one of their handcrafted ceramic urns, which are so cool by the way, check out Spirit Vessel. And if you do order anything, feel free to use the promo code DEATHSPACE for free shipping. If you're like me, it can be really hard to come up with the words to say in a card. I know, I always laugh too because talk about 10 years of improv training down the drain. (laughs) Not being able to come up with anything. But that's especially, but that's especially, but that's especially so. I don't know why I can say especially. There you go. Perfect. I can say it. (laughs) During times of grief or when someone loses someone. But thankfully, there's the Cardist Studio. There are no words to comfort in a time of deep loss, but you send a card because you care. Yeah, because as we've learned through this podcast, sending something, saying anything, is better than saying nothing. The Cardist Studio creates your message, writes it in your card, and mails it for you. See? They'll help you out. You have the intention, the Cardist has the words, bing, bang, boom. All you do is pick the card and tell why you're sending it. No anxiety, all care for a message from your heart, but not your hands. Just sit back and enjoy your relationships. You know, you don't want to have that awkward feeling like, ah, was that too much? Did I say too much? Am I talking too much? As I'm literally talking too much? As opposed to figuratively talking too much, Pat. All right. (laughs) My inner voice is kind of mean to me. TheCardistStudio.com, thoughtful, just got easy. And better yet, you can use the promo code DEATHPOD, one word, for 10% off all orders. You ever lie in your resume? Huh? Look at me. Look at me when you're lying. No, you should never do that. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> but it can be daunting to, to look at a, a job listing, see everything that you have and, and things that you probably don't have. But we can fix that with my software tutor. My software tutor offers three levels of real-time Zoom-based courses with a live instructor. So I'm gonna keep you on task. They've seen it, they've heard it, they've seen the resumes, they know the holes, but they're here to help. They'll deliver practical, functional business skills in a friendly and supportive environment. It'd be funny if it really wasn't a supportive environment. When are you going to understand this? (laughs) Of course, that's not the case. That's just the anxiety or, or, or reliving fear dreams we had as children. These courses will increase your marketability. The job market couldn't be better right now. So it's a perfect time to invest in yourself and and improve that resume. Whether you're an employee, job seeker, consultant, or contractor, you can sign up for these classes at mysoftwaretutor.com and use the promo code POD20 to save 20% off all registrations. Would you look at that? All right. Enjoy that new job. The last year of your mom's life was, was extremely difficult with her couch surfing and you're trying to help her. Describe to me what it's like when, when you find out that your, your mother has, is gone in, uh, and has committed suicide. It's, oh, and I'll use this opportunity to, to move things forward a little too, which is that a lot of people don't realize this yet, so this is not a note. But we try and encourage people not to say commit anymore oh, okay. um, because it makes it sound like a crime, which is very outdated as opposed to a health thing. So That's good to know. Any- Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. And if you notice most like major newspapers and news outlets don't say that anymore, you can say it pretty much any other way. They killed themselves, or they took their own life, uh, died by suicide. Okay. So when I found out my mom died by suicide, someone had actually arranged for a place for my mom to stay for like six months, which then became a year. Free of charge, people pulled really pulled major strings with a with like a charitable organization they were involved with. But my mom saw it as being like the end of the road. It was going to be like 30 or 40 minutes away. It wasn't in the nice area. And she thought it was the end for her. And meanwhile, she needed to get out of this where she was by a certain date. I was trying to be helpful with facilitating that. And by, you know, the weekend before I was like, 
that's a, you know, I offered, I offered to come in and be with her and help her move from one place to the other. And she wasn't going back and she wasn't. And finally I was like, I'm not doing this at the last minute. And at the time, if this gives you an idea, my wife and I still had a landline with an answering, like a, a tape, a cassette answering machine set up oh, wow. <laughs> to it, literally just for my mom, because I didn't want to give her my my cell number because I didn't want her to be able to catch me literally at any moment. And the answering machine was off and the volume was low and all that. And so I was doing some work and I was wondering if the phone was going to ring with either her or someone trying to get her out of this place or whatever it was. And I would often, for my own mental well-being, I would often let her or whoever, if it had something to do with her, leave a message first. And then I would listen to it as soon as they hung up and I could call back. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't as immediate feeling for me. Mm -hmm. So I heard the message and I went to, to listen to it, hoping it wouldn't be like her refusing to leave and the cops being called or something. And it was... I don't know if it was the landlord or, or someone who was involved in the whole situation left me this message and he said, you know, this is a terrible thing to leave on your answering machine, but you know, your mom was supposed to blah, blah, blah. I forget exactly what he said, but by the time we got there, she was gone. And the way I heard that, because I was ready for all this sort of chaos that I didn't want to be brought into, I thought he literally meant she had left the apartment. Right. Yeah, that's reasonable. And so when I first heard it, I was like, oh, well, good. I don't know what's going on, but at least she got out of there and I'm not being called to deal with it and all that. And then he like went on for a few more seconds and it just dawned on me. It, the context became clearer and I realized, oh my God, she's gone. I realized what he meant. And I was in, you know, you can't say it wasn't surprising in a way after all those years, but it was shocking. Mm -hmm. So yeah, my memory of that was I was at home at the time, which was a nice thing. I didn't have the pressure to go into an office. Mm. It happened to be a slow time at that particular time of year. It was like a physical trauma kind of for the next few months. I remember times where I would be sort of lying on the couch and maybe my wife would be somewhere else in the apartment and I'd be like watching a movie on a laptop or reading and I'd feel perfectly fine in that moment. And all of us, this was like a couple months later, or, you know, something like that. And I would just suddenly feel like with no warning, I would just be racked with sobs. And then it would be gone. Like it would be over just like that. And so it was just years of tension. And one thing that I remember, this was really important for me and it might sound terrible, but I think it's important if anyone's listening to this, if they've experienced the same thing. I mentioned that any emotion you feel is fine and reasonable. And sometimes the emotions will conflict or if, if different people from, from the family are, are navigating a loss like this, they might be feeling different emotions at different times. But I remember maybe a month after my mom died, one of her best friends who'd known her since middle school called me up to check in. And at one point in the conversation, she said, I don't know, this might sound terrible, but on some level, I wonder if you're, if you're feeling a sense of and I expected her to say anger because that felt like the cliched thing. I really appreciated this person. And I, but I was on some level, I was like rolling my eyes, expecting her to say, you might be feeling some sense of anger, but she didn't say anger. She said relief. And the thing is I was, and it didn't, it in no way meant that I was glad that my mom had died. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Like if I could travel back in time and do anything to stop it, I would. But after so many years of being so stressed out and worried literally every day, it wasn't, I it wasn't relieved that my mom was gone, but I was relieved at not you know, every day for decades, I'd be stressed about the phone ringing at any given moment with mm -hmm. some sort of total chaos that I had to deal with. And so my mom, it was never a burden on me. I know like something that suicidal people feel is that they're a burden. I would never describe my mom as a burden and I would do anything to have her back. But part of one of the emotions I was going through was a sense of relief that I at least didn't have to worry. I, I completely understand that emotion that I lost a grandmother to dementia and, and oh, watching gosh. someone... I'll use the word deteriorate because it's yeah. an awful, awful disease. But at a certain point that you're just like, that poor woman was suffering and, and didn't deserve that. So I understand that it, it, it feels similar, just sort of like the circumstances of 
what they're going through is so painful to to witness that there is a, a sense of relief I guess as yeah. awful as it is to say and the complexity of it is that again that frustration that there was no reason for her to have had to die mm-hmm. there was help for her there were things that could have helped her like figure out her life and and in fact make anything she was still pretty young just involved really taking a hard look and accepting help so that was what was hard about it yeah i've taken up a lot of your time i have just two final thoughts that i'd love to get before we end here one is you mentioned some of the resources that are out there i'd love to hear those again and number two what helped you on that on your path of of recovering and dealing with your your mom's loss there's certainly many people out there who have lost someone to suicide so I want to try to help them or at least give them a path that may work to to help them. Yeah, there's there's stuff for people to realize that it gets it does get easier and there there will always be that loss, but it won't feel as you won't be feeling it as keenly. Yeah. Well, Brett and I, in our original recording, hit a a little bit of a a technical audio issue. So if this sounds a little bit different, it's because we recorded it later. But it's very important that we get this information in here. So apologies if that was jarring. But I wanted to bring Brett back on so he can tell us a little bit more about AFSP. So Brett, why don't you take it away? Sure. I'll give you a little snapshot of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP. Basically, it was started in 1987 when a few families who had lost loved ones to suicide got together with a small number of scientific researchers who wanted to learn more about suicide and what we can all do to prevent it. And so we really started as a research organization. We're still the largest private funder of suicide prevention research, and we lead research efforts around the world, figuring out new ways, you know, things that make a difference and can help prevent suicide. We can't can't look at one person and say, I'm going to stop that particular individual from taking their life. But there are things statistically we know that have been proven to to help prevent suicide. So suicide is preventable. So we've got research. We have out-of-the-darkness walks, which take place in communities and campuses all over the country through our chapters. We have chapters in every state. I think it's I'm going to get the number wrong. It's in the 80s. We have like 87 chapters or something oh, wow. like that, right? That's now. great. You can go to afsp.org and just there's a find a chapter page and you just put in your zip code and chances are there's a chapter near you with other people in your community who already sort of get it. You don't have to over explain anything if you have some connection to suicide and mental health. So we've got chapters, we've got research, we've got walks. We also have a public policy office in Washington, D.C., and volunteers all across the country can sign up to become volunteer field advocates where we fight for smart mental health and suicide prevention legislation. It can be as easy as like clicking a button and sending an email to one of your representatives. They make it really easy for you. And some people get very, very involved in the policy and advocacy aspect. We have an advocacy forum that takes place every year in Washington, DC. I've I've been to this and they arrange meetings on the Hill and you go up and have meetings with with, uh, representatives. And it's very cool for people who really get into that aspect of it. Yeah, that's um, great. We also, we have a loss and healing department, which provides support for people who've lost someone who've been affected by suicide. There's a, a cool program called Healing Conversations, which arranges, whether it's phone, video, or in person, a meeting with trained volunteers who have themselves lost someone to suicide, and they know what that feels like, but they're also on the other side of it, and some time has gone by, and they help. It's a really cool program. They help provide understanding and support often soon after someone's lost someone. We also have education programs and all our programs are uh, sort of evidence-based and clinically informed. And through again, through our local chapters, you can bring programs like Talk Saves Lives to your workplace or to your church or your school, or you know, we have different education programs. And I think I'm not forgetting anything aside from Project 2025, which is an initiative that started a number of years ago, uh, trying to 
we we sort of looked at all the ways that we could that research has shown we can help prevent suicide 20%, lower the rate 20% by 2025. And that involves, that's if we get buy-in from things like hospital systems and the corrections environment. And we looked at places, ways that we could save the most lives the fastest, like from a really a general health perspective through different areas. So that's, I've probably forgotten something. And for support, often people will, even though we're America's largest suicide prevention organization, people will, the first thing they'll think of is, oh, you're like a crisis line. That's the one thing we're not. And we, we suggest people uh, reach out to our partners, like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which I'm very honored to be, I'm, I'm on one of their committees, though I don't work for them. And that's 24-7 and free. And if you're worried about someone, it doesn't have to be you who's struggling. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The other one is the Crisis Text Line, which is basically the same kind of thing. It's crisis services, free 24-7. For some people picking up the phone, if they're really struggling, it's easier to just text. And there are different crisis resources for veterans and things like that. And we have, we have you know, a pretty clear link to to those services on our website for those other organizations. That's great. Uh, It's so thorough. It's just so nice to to hear how much there is out there for for people to get support wherever, however suicide has touched their life. There's just so much going on. So that's incredible. And, And always want to encourage people that there is help out there for whatever you're going through and, and, should absolutely take advantage of, of one of these resources if you even think you need it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think what's hard is just starting that conversation. If you're worried about someone or if it's for yourself, it's really hard to start that conversation, which is why it's really helpful for, you know, anyone to just make mental health, just a a thing that they get used to talking about on an everyday basis and letting their friends kind of organically kind of know that they're a safe person to talk to about it. There's Mm -hmm. no shame in it. We all have mental health, just like we all have physical health. Absolutely. Well, is there any social media you want to mention for either yourself or the AFS or the AFSP? I I don't know why that's really hard. It's a tongue twister. It is. (laughs) I I have sometimes thought about starting a game show where, where I tell people our, our organization's name and then they have to (laughs) <laughs> quote unquote, guess it right afterwards. Yeah, uh, people say federation. It's yeah, it's it's tough. yeah. We're AFSP National is is what you would look for on all the things on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We just started on TikTok, so it's on all of those things. It's at AFSP National. And if anyone is interested in following me, you can find me. It's just my name. It's at Brett Ween. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the original interview and, and then coming back here. It's your openness and, and honesty and, and uh, how brave you are to talk about such a difficult aspect is, is incredible to see. It has been my pleasure and I love your podcast and it was, uh, it was an honor and a privilege. Thank you. That's very nice of you. Just want to reiterate If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or the Crisis Text Line, which are both free and available 24-7. Like I said in the intro, the information will be in the description for the podcast, wherever you're listening. So please, please reach out if, if, if you need it. And thank you so much to Brett Ween and for everything that he and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention do. I learned, I, I learned a lot in that interview, and, and well, thanks again, Brett. Next week's show will be Death Space Filling the Void Season 3's finale. Got a, a bit of a different one lined up. I'm interested to see how, how people like it, but uh, it was certainly fun to make, and, and hopefully people are into it. As always, if, if you're liking the show, please remember to rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And to check the show out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, my other podcast called That Gives Me Anxiety, which is about to go weekly. I, I'm projecting in, in, in March. I'll start, start it up going weekly. So, yeah, that's exciting. And I'm working on season four of Death Space Filling the Void right now. 
And once again, I'd like to mention and thank the sponsors. Spirit Vessel, use the promo code DEATHSPACE, one word, for free shipping on personalized urns and the celebration of life ceremony packages. The Cardist Studio, you can use the promo code DEATHPOD, one word, for 10% off all orders. And my software tutor, you can use the promo code POD20 for 20% off all orders. Thanks again to all those companies. Well, have a great weekend. Take care of yourselves. And I'll talk to you on Thursday for the season three finale. Yeah. Oh, my voice got real high there. What a range. (laughs) 